The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Good morning, Story City Church. Good morning. My name is Peter. I uh, lead a men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, and I also serve on the finance team. And uh, I have the privilege of leading the scripture this morning. Um, It's one that uh, resonates a lot with me. About six years ago, I found myself as the younger son in this story, and I spent about a year and a half wandering in the wilderness. And uh, uh, then God brought me back to my senses. It took me about six months to walk back from where I had come, from where I had been. And uh, now it's been four years where I've been at Story City. So I'm going to ask you to read for the, uh, to stand for the reading of God's word. And at the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond, thanks be to God. So uh, Jesus... He's told a number of parables. He's, this is his third parable where he's speaking to, Pharise- uh, to tax collectors and sinners, and he's explaining to them the love of the Father. So Jesus, um, he told them, uh, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll go up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers." So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine who was dead and is alive again, and he is lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. He said, your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has been back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But the reply to his father, look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, and you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like I have a whole litany of stuff up here this morning. Good morning. How are you, fam? Good to see you all this morning. It is a pleasure to be here. My name is Jared. I have the privilege of being one of your pastors, and uh, I am excited. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We say Burbank location because we just launched our Granada Hills location. Yeah, we can clap for that. That is always good stuff. God is good, and, uh, and uh, all the time. I didn't get a single all the time. Where's my longtime Christians? Yeah, all right, all right, all the time, God is good. There we go. (laughs) 
Fam, before we go any farther, I, I wanted to stop and just say thank you. Uh, two specific things. One, last month was Pastor Appreciation Month, and you guys did awesome by me by giving me this little box with these rad notes, uh, just thanking me. I really appreciate that. It means a lot. Kind of like uh, waiters at restaurants, you often only get to hear the bad stuff about how you're doing, not always the good stuff about how you're doing. It comes with a job. We know it. We get it. But all pastors, here's a secret. All pastors are codependent. We all want everybody to like us, right? So there are moments when it's really helpful to have little notes like these and be able to pull them out and go, okay, that's good. God's got me. We're great. This church is an awesome church that loves me. And so I deeply appreciate those things. Second of all, uh, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, right before I traveled to Chicago, some of you know I came up and I was talking about I had had a root canal and I had had a nasty infection that came from that and the pain was off the charts. I didn't think I was going to be able to preach. You guys were so awesome. You prayed for me. That very night, the pain pretty much went away, and the rest of the week, it was awesome. And so thank you guys for your prayers for me. I'm grateful. Somebody asked me, they said, you know, we couldn't even tell that you were in pain. Why did you say anything? And the reality is, is that I just don't want to be that pastor. I don't want to be the pastor that I can hide stuff from you, but why? That's not my job. Did you know the pastor's job is to be broken and transparent, to be honest about the things that God is doing in me because God cares more about what he's doing inside of me than what I can do for him. He doesn't need me, right? And so my job is to be transparent with the brokenness and I am a deeply flawed and broken person. But as you see the power of God transform my life, you go, man, if God can transform him, then God can transform me. And so thank you for being a part of that process with me. Thank you for letting me share the times that I'm hurting, the times that I'm tired, the times that I'm weak. It means a lot to me that you're a safe place for me to be that for you and also for you and us together as a family. So again, I'm glad. Welcome. We're so excited that you're here. Glad for those of you who are new with us. Again, this is a, this is, you know where liars go? Story City, right? (laughs) It's a church filled with hypocrites. We're a broken church, but God is good and God is right. And we are learning to apprentice Jesus to the best of our ability as a family. We do that through things we call discipleship rhythms. And there's, there's ways that we can, uh, we, we obviously can't do anything to, to make God better. We can't do anything to make God more glorious or more right. He is already perfect and good. But we can do things that help us grow in our relationship with him. And those discipleship rhythms are things that we say, like uh, worship and services together. When we come together and do this, there's something about Sunday service isn't for us. It's about ascribing value and worship to God. And something about doing that together edifies our soul and makes us whole and it, it, it heals those parts of us that needs to be healed when we do that in community because the Bible is written to community. The second is to live in groups and we, we just have, we want to make sure that we are doing the, the majority of our work, the majority of the way people enter the church, the majority of the way that we love our community is in our groups. It's where we grow together. It's where we learn together. It's where we have accountability together. Learn and studies. Those of you right now, uh, it's been fun to hear about our class that is going through the spiritual formation, and I've been excited to see your guys' answers to those uh, questions that we're putting out there and and hearing about some of the hard work you guys are doing. That's an imperative. And lastly, to serve in teams. When we serve together, we learn what it means and practice as we go out, and and, uh, the, the church is the primary tool God uses to expand his kingdom in the world. And so we get to practice by serving each other. And, and, and this is a great starting place to learn how to do that. So we learn how to do that in our everyday lives. Those are our discipleship rhythms. And those rhythms help us to grow in our ability to love Jesus and to love people. But ultimately, what we want to get to is the fact that the closer we get to the heart of Jesus, the more our heart is broken for those that do not know him. 
the closer we get to Jesus, the more that our heart is broken for those that are spiritually disconnected. And for those of you who are new here, who are new to apprenticing Jesus, you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing out. I want you to know the next step for you is baptism. And we have one coming up the 13th. I'm super excited. There's a church plant next door, Spanish-speaking church plant next door called Casa de Fe. They're going to be doing their baptisms with us on the 13th after second service. That's going to be awesome. Praise God for what God is doing in Burbank. We love this city. Please sign up through the Engage QR code in the back of the seat in front of you. All right. We are continuing our series called The Heart of the Father. Today's sermon is called The Lost Boys. Oh, yeah. I'm from Santa Cruz. That movie is filmed in my hometown. There you go. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. It's all right. Uh, but we're talking about, uh, as Peter alluded to, the Luke 15, things that Jesus said were lost and found. And a couple of things I want to remind you about, and that is from the Middle Eastern perspective, it would not be told from the story of that which was lost, but of the person who lost it. And this takes the burden off of the lost thing to be found and puts it on the burden on that, the person who has lost it. So the story of the shepherd, the story of the woman who lost the coin, and the story of the father who had lost his sons. Well, let's pray, and then we'll continue on. Father, thank you for all that you are doing in this city. God, we, we love you. Thank you that... that Lord, across the city, there are churches who are, Lord, trying their best to be faithful to you, just like we are, who are working to glorify the name of Jesus, to to bring you honor and glory in the way that we live, to be a people who are submitted to scripture, who are passionate about you and passionate about those around us, especially those that are spiritually disconnected. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless them, that you would, Lord, bring life and healing to those churches around us, that you would bring, Lord, your light to the city, brokenness, that you'd bring restoration to marriages, you'd bring healing to addiction, that you would bring, Father, hope where there is no hope, you would bring restoration where there needs to be restoration. Thank you that you are the good and faithful God who is our answer. We love you, Jesus, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen. One last reminder as uh, we're going forward in this, we are uh, utilizing the outline uh, from Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. When he, uh, our team has exegeted this, but he, his outline is outstanding. And so uh, we do recommend if you want to pick that book up to go a little bit deeper, Prodigal God by Tim Keller is an excellent book. It's been very helpful. And so um, we just want to let you know we are pulling quotes and ideas from that book so that you don't go, man, Jared's really smart. It's Pastor Keller. It's all right. It's all good. But today, the big thing we want you to understand that, that uh, the author Luke is teaching us from this passage is that God desires us to love him simply for him. That God desires us to love God just for God, not all the things that we get from God. And so we've read the parable already, but let's remind ourselves of the context. Look with me at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Again, those of you who are new to the Bible, if you open it up to the middle, that's the Psalms, right dead center. That's the Old Testament. If you keep going, you'll get into the New Testament, which starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're in the third book, Luke. The Old Testament, Jesus has always existed. He's always been God. Uh, but the New Testament is where he takes on human nature in addition to his God nature. And so we see the New Testament starting with the Gospels, and that's the life of Jesus. So Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7, it says this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining 
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And so Jesus is talking to two separate groups here. He's talking to the, the lawless. He's talking to those who are, um, according to the, to the Pharisees and scribes, the, the, the ones who have wandered away, the ones who aren't doing enough. They are in danger of losing not only their heritage, but allowing the, the, the Hellenization, the, the Romanization of their people to actually possibly even wipe out their culture, wipe out their religion once and for all. And so on one side, the Pharisees are really trying to do a lot of what Jesus is trying to do is call them back to the Father. The problem is, is that the Pharisees are saying, we're going to double down on our good works. We're going to double down on the ways that we are good. That's how we're going to earn back this place of favor with God. And they've created this spot where those uh, tax collectors and sinners feel as if there is no way back to God because they could never reach the level of righteousness that's been ascribed to them. And Jesus' ministry is characterized by these tax collectors and sinners constantly flocking to him. They keep coming to him over and over again. And this is really frustrating the Pharisees. They begin to complain that they're getting Jesus' time. And by Jesus' time, it's as if he's affirming them, validating them. And so it's the Pharisees that Jesus tells these three parables to. And we don't want to lose that as we start thinking about what Jesus is trying to tell us. Because understanding the context helps us understand the main point of what Jesus is trying to do. In doing this, though, Jesus completely shatters our ideas of lostness, our ideas of spiritual disconnectedness, our ideas of sin, but also our ideas of how we actually walk faithfully and humbly with God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but it's easy to look at our Bibles and go, that's 2,000 years ago. I don't really always know what that has to do with us. Uh, But the truth is that we today are still attempting to live life in the same way. Why? The two views between the older brother and the younger brother are uh, the way of moral conformity for the the older brother, and the younger brother's view is the way of self-discovery. Moral conformity and self-discovery, both of those views tend to color the way that we see life, tend to change the way that we look at how everything is done, specifically from a religious or spiritual perspective. And each is a way of finding personal significance, personal worth, and determining right or wrong. I don't want you to miss that. Both of them help us determine our identity. Because how do I know if I'm doing well unless I can compare myself to other people? Now, most of us go, I I wouldn't do that. But I think it's a good moment for us to, to take a step back and think about what sin really is. I think some of us have a vague idea that it's just doing bad stuff. And as long as I'm not doing bad stuff, I'm not really sinning. Uh, one that I've heard recently is, um, is, well, my intentions were good. My intentions were good. So what is sin? I love Pastor John Piper's definition. He says this. He said, what is sin? 
It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. And the person of God not loved. That is sin. Sin always comes down to control. Sin always comes down to control. Whenever we don't cherish or prize or trust and obey God, we, aren't, we are saying that he isn't worthy of our obedience and our trust and our love. That's a hard statement because we feel like, well, that's not what I'm intending. But the truth is that anything that we choose to trust or obey or to serve other than God means we are placing that thing of value over who God is. Usually it's ourself in one form or another. In addition to the sin we choose, we also have a problem, and that problem is that we were born into sin. We were born sinful. David speaks of this in Psalm 51.5. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Paul also speaks of this to his letter of the church in Rome, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, both the younger brother types, that's the sinners and tax collectors, and the older brother types, that's the scribes and Pharisees, were were both aware of original sin and sin by choice. It wasn't new to them. They understood that. That's not the point of Jesus' story. Jesus presents a whole different way of how God is dealing with sin now from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because Jesus comes and becomes the fulfillment of the law, we no longer have the law that we have to contend with, and so now it's through Jesus that we're saved. So this is a marked shift. Previously, sin was atoned through through the sacrificial law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law, but Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that law. Side note, again, the verse that says, thou shalt not have tattoos, the verse right above it says, thou shalt not have sideburns. There's a lot of 70s Christians going to hell if we have to conform to both of those laws, right? Jesus fulfilled that law. We're good. It's okay. All right? All right. As Jesus unfolds his story, though, he sees, uh, he resets our understanding of how restoration and salvation come about. And this is the point. This is why he makes such a big deal about the joy that's found in the lost things, the celebration Let's start with each brother as we look at this. And I think as we do, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, family, it's okay to be honest with ourselves this morning. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, I think we will see more of us in each brother than we think. For those of you taking notes today, this is the first observation. The younger brother's sin was that he didn't love the father. The younger brother's sin was that he didn't love the father. The father. When we get to the younger brother's point, this point in the younger brother's life, it's not like this is a spur of the moment type thing. You don't just wake up and hate somebody. Something has been building and festering in your heart for quite a while. 
Let's go back to verse 12 of today's passage. Luke 15, 12 says, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want what you have for me anymore. I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with this. I'm done with your rule over me. I'm done with your ways. I'm done with all of it. Give me my stuff. I want out. That is not an overnight thing. So enough time comes to places where he can say that to his father, knowing that his father could have him killed for that. That's how much contempt that he has. That almost his contempt is almost worth more than his life. Now, Keller points out that the younger brother illustrates the way of self-discovery. He writes, this view holds that individuals must be free to pursue their own goals and self-actualization regardless of custom and convention. In this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition, prejudice, hierarchical authority, and other barriers to personal freedom were weakened or removed. This view says, I'm the only one that can say what is right or wrong for me. I'm going to live and find my true self and happiness in that way. And in Jesus' story, the brother humiliates his family. I mean, this is like, this is a big deal. And he lives this self-indulgent lifestyle. He's like, you know what? You guys do your own thing. I got, I'm my own person. I got this. And, and what I want for me matters for me and me alone. I don't care about the rest of you. And so he's totally out of control. He's totally alienated from the father who represents God in this story. Now, for the ancient Jews, anyone who lives like that would be cut off from God. It would be obvious that they are absolutely walking away from God. They would have known that this line of thinking was the same as Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve said, God, we, we think our way is better than your way, and we don't trust that you actually have our best interest in mind. You're keeping something from us, right? This is what Satan told them. He said, he said that you, uh, if you eat this, you'll be knowledgeable. It's not that you're going to die. You just, God doesn't want you to know what he knows. And so he's holding back on you, and they said, well, we don't want God to hold back on us. We know what's best for us, and they chose the same way. This is exactly what we do today. The problem lies in that God's plan and God's ways for us are always better for us than we can make for ourselves. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as, the heaven, is high, for as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Loving the father truly and completely would have meant that the the younger son would have actually wanted to stay with the father because the longer he stayed, the better they all did, right? Like the father's been building wealth and inheritance, and and if he stays with the father, that actually builds. He gets more. If he really cared about the father, he would have cared about the father doing well. Why do we know that? Because in Luke 15, 31, it says, son... He said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Everything is going to the kids anyway. For those taking notes, this is the second observation for today. The older brother's sin was that he didn't love the father. The older brother's sin was that he didn't love the father. Keller writes, the older, brother's, older brother illustrates the way of moral conformity. This view says, I'm not going to do what I want, but what tradition and the community wants me to do. The Pharisees of Jesus' day and many religious people today believe they can only maintain their place in his blessing and receive final salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. But there is a way to be obedient to the Bible and not love God. In this view, God's will and the standards of community are ahead of individual fulfillment. 
In this view, we can only attain happiness in a world made right by being morally good. Now, we may fall at times, of course, but then we will be judged by how serious and intent our regret is, according to this view. In this view, even our failures must manage, measure up. Did you catch that? That even when we fall, there's something about trying to be morally good where even our failures have to show that we are intently sorry. And so somehow we're still trying to earn God's favor even through our repentance to get back to a place of goodness with God. Let's hold up for a second. Family, if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, If we believe that those who confess with their mouth and in their hearts, Jesus becomes their Lord, their master, their savior, and their lives are in submission to him, that they are saved. If we believe that Jesus' blood is more powerful than our sins, and that it covers all of our sins, past, present, and future, and that Jesus' righteousness has been accredited to us or imputed to us, that's the big Christianese word, imputed to us, given to us, If we believe that to be true, then let me ask you a question. Why do we say sorry when we sin? If we're already forgiven, and God already knows about every sin we've committed and will commit, is there anything that we've done or will not or will do that is a surprise to him? No. God already knew. I think there are times when we, uh, at least I, have come to this place where I'm like, I did it again. Oh my gosh, God is definitely not going to forgive me this time. But the truth is that God, when he died for my sins, knew I was going to do that exact sin and already forgave me for it. So why do we apologize? I agree. Adam and Eve faced a similar situation in their sin. And the first thing they do is, the Bible records that they realize they're naked and they try to cover themselves because their sin and their shame, their guilt, and then they hide from God. And so God asks this question. He says, where are you? But here's the funny thing. God knows exactly where they are. So why does he ask the question? I think he asked the question is so that Adam and Eve have the opportunity to recognize two things, to be aware of their sin and the fullness of it, but also to understand that running from God because of guilt and shame is not only pointless, but it's impossible. In that example, and in our example, God is a God who not only calls us back to him to find restoration, but he covers us. We see it in both stories. In Adam and Eve, God actually kills something and uses that skin to cover Adam and Eve. He covers their shame. He covers their nakedness. In the story of the son who was reckless, the father covers him in a robe and covers his feet with sandals. It's the same story from beginning to end. The Old Testament to the New Testament, God covers our guilt and our shame is the same with the blood on the cross. But in Jesus' story, the shocking thing is, is that we're left not knowing whether the older brother gets this or not. 
See, in Jesus' story, the older brother is steadfastly obedient to the father and therefore, by analogy, the commands of God. He's completely under control and quite self-disciplined, but Jesus makes a point to show he is just as spiritually disconnected as the younger brother. I see the Pharisees who Jesus is talking to knew exactly what that meant. It's a complete reversal of everything that they believed. You can almost hear them gasp at the end of verse 32 when we end the story without finding whether or not the, young, the older brother goes into the feast. Jesus purposely leaves it hanging. He's like, what are you going to do with this? But what is it that's keeping the older brother out? Luke 15, 29 says, but he replied to the father, look, I've been slaving many years from you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. It's because, quote, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed. See, the good son is not lost in spite of his good behavior, but because of his good behavior. It's not his sin keeping him out, but that he's looking to his own righteousness. He's trying to be his own savior by his own good works. He's not loving God for who God is. So how can anybody be saved? When we ask that question, though, we expose a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. It's not religion, but irreligion. It's relationship. Why is the older son disconnected? The younger brother wanted the father's wealth, but not the father. So how did he get what he wanted? He left home. He broke all the rules. He ran away and said, I'm going to do this on my own. He broke all the moral rules. But it's evident by the end that the older brother also selfishly wanted to control how the father was going to spend his wealth. And the use of his possessions, the things like the robe, the ring, the calf. Now, in ancient Israel, the way that it worked was uh, when you had children, the oldest son was the inheritor of your estate, and he got two-thirds of everything. The second-born son got one-third of everything. And after that, any of the children, three through 30, got nothing. And they had to rely on the older brother to make sure that he cared for them, and he was the one that led the family business. And so I want you to think about this for a minute. The younger brother has already spent his third of the estate. When he comes back and the father welcomes him into the family, whose share does he have to live on for the rest of his life? The older brother knows the father is spending his inheritance. The older brother knows it's costing him. The older brother knows it's unfair that this kid spent everything, did what he want. I didn't get to do what I want. I had to obey this entire time. And look, you get to come back and now I have to support you. You can feel the resentment dripping in his voice, not just over the younger brother, but over the father and the way the father is choosing to spend his own inheritance. So now the older brother feels he has the right to tell the father what to do because of his obedience. Father, you are doing this wrong. I know better. And this belongs to me anyway. You already said this is all mine. So there's two ways to be your own savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the laws and being bad, saying, God can't tell me what to do. I'm my own God. The second is, if I can be that good, I'll even show up to church before the music starts. (gasps) I might come to church more than twice a month. Listen, if somebody shows up three times in a row, we make them an elder. That's like unheard of around here. But there's this sense that if if I'm good enough, then God owes me. 
He owes me a good life. He owes me ease. He owes me comfortability. He owes me a sense of like, he's going to look out for me and I don't have to struggle or strain with stuff because God owes me a good life. I've been good. Why wouldn't he? And in doing so, we look to Jesus to be our helper, our rescuer, our cosmic ATM, but not our savior because we are our savior by our own good works. The difference between a religious person and an apprentice of Jesus is that the religious person obeys God to get control over God and things from God. And the apprentice obeys just to be with God, to love and please and draw closer to him. I was on a prayer retreat a couple years ago, and I had decided to spend a week in solitude. And my introverts in the room, you're thinking, that sounds wonderful. I was thinking, that sounds like hell. I thought, well, I'll go camping. And, uh, and so my wife, we dropped a trailer off, and, and my wife took off with the truck, so I couldn't even go anywhere. And of course, there wasn't even like neighbors on either side of me. I couldn't even, you know, like hang out with the people around me. And so uh, the week wore on, I was struggling. I was struggling. And, uh, and, and we got to this day before the last, I got to the day before the last day, and I was like, God, I, I'm just not hearing from you in the way that I expected to hear from you. And I've been praying and fasting and doing all this stuff. And finally, that morning, I got up and I was like, all right, God, what do you want me to do today? You want me to, to, to read my scripture? Do you want me to uh, read a book? You want me to just pray? You want me to worship? And I felt like God responded, I'd, I'd rather you just sat with me. And I was like, that's funny, God. Okay, so how do you want me to do that? You want me to do that through reading or prayer? And he's like, no, I, I literally just want you to be with me. I was like, great. How do you want me to be with you? Prayer, worship. And he's like, I, I don't think you're getting this, Jared. And I was like, I, I'm... I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm trying to do this for you so I can be closer to you. And, and I, oh, I hate this response. I felt like God say, yeah, I don't need anything you can give me. Oh, that's heartbreaking, but true. And he said to me, Why, when did you become more about doing things for me than just being with me? Ugh. I felt like the next thing he told me was, I want you to just to enjoy me for me. Just sit here with me. So I begrudgingly set my stuff down. I just sat there. After what felt like an hour and was definitely about 10 minutes, I was like, are we done yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet, God? And I just felt like he kind of laughed, didn't say anything. About 30 more angsty minutes went by, and nope. And then something happened, and uh, I, I realized I had been sitting there for about three hours, and at some point, I had stopped trying to focus on all the reasons I didn't want to sit there and all the other important things I could be doing. And the best way that I could describe this was like sitting on a rocking chair on a porch, drinking some sweet tea. This is an analogy for all you Southerners, okay? Watching the lightning bugs. Okay, not fireflies, that's, that's for you northerners, <laughs> lightning bugs, right? And just being with grandpa and not having to say anything, but just enjoying the presence. And that's what I felt. And what was crazy was I felt like God say, this is what I've been hoping for. I miss this with you. I miss you just being here for me and not for anything that you can do for me. Any time spent in our Bibles, a prayer, or praise, and worship should flow out of the enjoyment of who he is and just being with him. 
So here's the deal. We, we spend a lot of time in church talking about the younger brother types, and many of you guys are really aware of what that looks like, but we don't spend enough ta- time talking about what it means to be an older brother. And so let's look at how we know if we are like the older brother. Verse 28, he became angry. There's a sense that God owes us. I've had this exact conversation with God. God, you owe me. Don't you know what I've done for you? If we're trying to live up to those standards, especially when we have, there can be this sense of, again, this this owing. But we forget that Jesus lived a life better than us, perfect than us, and yet he suffered terribly. Verse 29, the older brother had a joyless and mechanical obedience. Elder brothers obey God out of a means to an end. I'm trying to get what God can give me and make sure I don't mess up too bad so God doesn't smite me. But ultimately, it's because I love the things of God, not God himself. And so obedience to God is sometimes hard, but elder brothers find obedience almost always joyless, mechanical, and a slavish thing because it's just trying to get through and get it done. Verse 30, a coldness to younger brother types. The elder brother will not even own his own brother. Did you know one of the shocking things about this story is the older brother's responsibility was to go after the younger brother. First of all, he should have been trying to bring him back, but if he couldn't bring him back, it was his job to kill him. And so one of the shocking things to the, to the listeners of this story is that it's the father looking for the younger son to come back, not the older brother. The older brother didn't even care enough to be looking for him. Elder brothers would love to pretend the younger brothers are not a part of the family. They pride themselves in their doctrinal and moral purity unavoidably feeling superior to those who don't have these things. Verse 30, a lack of assurance of the Father's love. As long as you are trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through your goodness, you're never going to be sure that you have done enough. And so there's this sense of like uncertainty about our place with God, our identity in God, our security with God. Every time something in your life goes wrong, you wonder if it's punishment. Well, Some people describe this as waiting for the other shoe to drop. I must have done something wrong. I don't know what it is, but God's going to get me. Another sign is irresolvable guilt. You can't be sure you've repented deeply enough, and so you feel as if you have to try to repent more, or you give up. You're just like, I I don't know that I could do this enough, and so you just sort of sit and live in this guilt, but it begins to define you to the place where you're going, if I'm not feeling guilty, then I probably am not repentant enough. Lastly, there's a lack of any sense of intimacy with God in your prayer life. You may pray to God a lot, but there just doesn't seem like there's any connection there. You don't feel like a sense of his love. This leads to an unforgiving judgmental spirit. The elder brother does not want to forgive the father, and he doesn't want the father to forgive the younger brother. It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel like, I would never do anything that bad. You have to be somewhat of an elder brother to not forgive. The family, this leads us right back to what we talked about at the very beginning, that Luke, the author of this text, wants us to know from this passage that we are to love God for who God is himself and not the things that he can give us. When the father comes out to the older brother, that's Jesus pleading with his enemies. He's pleading with the scribes and Pharisees. He's pleading with them. Come in to the feast. He's urging them to see their fatal error, but he doesn't scream at them. He doesn't smite them. He lovingly urges them to repent and to come into love. 
Do you see that? He walks with both his lost sons. The younger son into the feast. The older son, he's trying to get in to the feast. On the cross, instead of blasting his enemies, Jesus lovingly took the penalty of his sins on himself, including of those who are crucifying him. Romans 5.10. Ultimately, older brother types cannot extend grace to others because they cannot extend it to themselves. Family, when we are older brothers, the reason, one of the reasons we have trouble extending grace to others who are not like us, who are, are not following God, or those who frustrate us by the way they live, it's because we don't know how to give that grace to ourselves. In his book, Abide in Christ, Andrew Murray writes, the idea they have of grace is this, that their conversion and pardon are God's work, but that now it's their work to live as Christians and follow Jesus. There is always the thought of a work that has to be done, and even though they pray for help, still the work is theirs. They fail continually, and they become hopeless, and the despondency only increases the helplessness. No wandering one. As it was Jesus who drew you when he spoke, come, Matthew eleven twenty eight. So it is Jesus who keeps you when he said, abide, John fifteen four. The grace to come and the grace to abide alike are from him and him alone. So what does that mean for us here at Story City Church? What do we do about it? Jesus ends the parable with lostness of the older brother in order to get the point across that it's a more dangerous spiritual condition. See, the younger brother knew that he was lost, and so he knew what he needed to do about it. But if you don't know that you're sick, you can die from not going to the hospital, right? From not getting care because you did not know that you were sick. Moralistic religion works on the principle, I obey and therefore God accepts me. The gospel works on the the, principle Principle, I'm accepted by God through Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. They're two radically different, even opposite dynamics, and yet both sets of people sit in church together, pray, and both obey the Ten Commandments, but for radically different reasons. Because they do these things for different reasons, they produce radically different results, different types of character. Family, one character produces anger, joyless compliance, superiority, insecurity, and a condemning spirit. The other slowly but inevitably produces contentment, joy, humility, and a forgiving spirit. When we love Jesus for who he is, we experience the true and better elder brother. Look what Jesus says in John 17, 10. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. Though we've been spiritually disconnected, Jesus gives freely to us as his co-heirs in Christ. We are the adopted sons and daughters. For those who are apprenticing Jesus, we are the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. We have been given the robe. We have been given the sandals. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who God is and what he has done. And so, family, my challenge for us this week is to ask ourselves this one question. In every area of my life, do I love God for him and not for what he can give me? Do I love God for him and not what he can give me? I would encourage you to spend time with this question. Don't take your first answer. But spend time. Ask the Lord to show you, Lord, do I love you in all areas of my life for who you are, not for what you can give me?